Well, good morning. I, just so you know, worked out almost every day this last week, which means I shouldn't have to work out again until next year, right? Okay, that's silly. I ate a really good meal last night. We made steak pizza and cheese bread at home, gluten-free, and it's good. I shouldn't have to eat for a week, right? I should be good. One time I hung out with my friends. I should never have to get together again, right? Okay, those are absurdities. And we know deep down in who we are that all of those are not just inaccurate, but they're, uh, one of, they're inane, asinine. And those words basically mean the same thing. They mean that, that whatever it is is silly to the point of, of absurdity. Yet, we come to the grace of Christ and don't we have a tendency to say, I needed that once, and that's all I needed it? We're, we're in a passage this morning, we're back in Ephesians, and we're at one of the main but God verses. So if you read Ephesians, like I hope you did, you'll see that we finished our but God series, but now we're back into really the biggest of the but God verses but we're back at Ephesians. And when we, when we look at this, we, we read it and we, we know that we're in this grace mindset, but we have a tendency to think that the grace that we needed was grace that we needed, not grace that we need. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We're spending this week and next week in this set of verses. Paul, again, writing to the people in, Ephesian, or in Ephesus, the Ephesian people, says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that last verse, verse 10, is frequently ignored. Uh, ignored is maybe overstated. It's frequently overlooked. When we look at these verses, we talk about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. They're such wonderful, great verses, and they are. And then we have a tendency to not even look at verse 10, which is a continuation of them. 
So in that vein, verse 10 is not what we're looking at today. Today, we're really looking at the setup, and next week, at the result of grace, the expectation of grace, which is verse 10. So it's getting its own sermon, its own time, as we really deliberate intentionally on what it means that God created these good works, that we should walk in them, and that word is important, because it's threaded throughout this whole book. And this whole set of verses. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. We've heard those verses. We've memorized those verses We've heard them spoken about. We've dwelt on them. We've thought about them. But have we thought about them holistically, rightly? I do not stand here giving intentionally the perspective that I know and you don't, because that's not true. I'm not intending to give the perspective that you have to have had particular kind of schooling in order to understand these verses. They're plain and clear, yet we have a tendency to look at them as isolated. Why would Paul say what he does? It's not even the first time he brings up grace in this chapter, let alone this letter. Why would he, why would he say verses 8 and 9 the way that he does? Why does he start it with a conjunction Four, conjunctions are important. Prepositions are important. If you remember from last week, genitives are important. The way sentences are constructed matters because God did not just inspire the content of Scripture. He inspired its form. I had a great conversation with my dad at one point about that. He does not like poetry. So when we come to the Psalms, he's just like, I don't like it. I don't want to read it. It's not the way my brain thinks. But he has to. Because the Psalms weren't just inspired in content. They were inspired in the way they were put together. And so we can't ignore it, right? The, the form matters. So why was it put together in this way, this sequence? In order to really understand verses 8 and 9, we have to step back. We have to take a look at the whole pericope, right? This section of scripture. And, and pericope is a word we've talked about before, but I really hope we really need it to be a, a word that's in our vocabulary, and not in our vocabulary in the sense that we go out and use it to impress somebody, though you can if you like. Again, it's spelled pericope. So if you try to spell it and you have no idea what you're doing, just spell pericope and you're, you got it. Pericope. You can look intelligent using it, but that's not the point. Why would we want this in our vocabulary? Because when we study scriptures, we're almost always studying pericopes out of them right? We haven't taken the time to study this letter as a whole. That is a really tough job to do in a sermon. But when this letter was sent to the Ephesian people, they were to sit down and read the letter to each other. 
Not just have somebody explain chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, because there wasn't a verse 8 and 9 out of chapter 2. Goodness, there wasn't even a chapter 2. There was a letter from Paul to the Ephesian people. And we step back now and we, we, in our time frame, the only way for us to understand it rightly is to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to study it in pericopes. So we study passages. That's what we tend to call them. But we sometimes talk about that and forget that the passages are slight, small sections of the whole. But how does Paul get to verses 8 and 9? out of this section of Scripture. He gets there by starting in verse 1. You. Paul goes all southern on us. What he really says is, y'all were dead. I spent time in Tennessee. Four glorious, hot years in Tennessee. You'd think the winters would be great, because it's down south, but the winters were, I mean, we still went golfing, but it was cold. It was like 40 degrees, but not the kind of 40 degrees that's kind of nice to be out in. It's the kind of 40 degrees that's always misting and blowing. It's just cold, but we'd still go golfing. You'd have really nice days. But when he says you were dead, he doesn't mean you or you or you. He means y'all were dead all of you, which includes himself. But you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You and I were what? We were not sick. We were not ill. We were not struggling. We were dead in what we were. We couldn't fix it. We couldn't even do anything about about it, no, let alone fix it. We couldn't even address it. We were dead in our sins, which is why we needed grace, right? We get to verses eight and nine. We needed the grace because we were dead. There was absolutely nothing we could do. So what is grace? We must understand it before we can even really go any further. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. The getting of something good that you didn't earn, that you don't deserve, that you should have never gotten, that I didn't earn, that I don't deserve, that I should never have gotten. That is grace. Why did I need to get that? Because I was dead in my sins. Again, I wasn't struggling. I wasn't sick. I was dead. But you all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This word walk is an important word. It sort of means that place in which you resided and did all of your stuff. Right? Not resided as in your home, but all of the stuff that you did, that's what this walking was. Go down to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Go to chapter four, verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord or worthy of the calling which, which you have received. But we used to walk in death, in the trespasses and sins that we took part in, not sometimes, but all the time. You want to know how we can know that? Let's go on and read. These are things in which we once walked, following the course of the world, which is not a good direction, right? In Scripture, the course of the world is always from order to chaos, Sounds like a law of thermodynamics I heard of one time, right? Everything moves from order to chaos, from a piece of metal to rust, which is what happens to our cars, right? They throw that blasted salt down on the ground so that we don't spin out and die, and in turn, our cars turn to rust, You leave food out, it breaks down, it decays. Everything moves from order to chaos, which has a lot to say about the construction and creation of the world, but that's a different conversation for a different time. Everything moves from order to chaos. And that was the course of the world that we willfully followed. So take everything else aside. Take all of the theological constructs and set them to the side for a moment. You and I each, as five-year-olds and up, as four-year-olds and up, I've got kids from two years old and up, know that what we are doing at times is wrong. Not that Noah would have ever done anything wrong, right? Noah's our four-year-old, and he does. But when he was two and we said no and the little guy just looked at us and then did what it was that we just told him not to do, he knew what he was doing, right? There was willful disobedience in that moment. It wasn't just what's broken inside, but it was willful disobedience from that moment on, at least, if not earlier, but that's a different conversation. From that moment on, when you willfully disobey, We all follow the course of this world, a path toward chaos and destruction, right? That's what sin does. We are tempted, we sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death, the only thing it can bring about. God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit which I told you not to eat, you will surely die, or dying, you will die. It wasn't the fruit that was evil. It was the disobedience that was evil. That's the course of this world. That's the manner in which we're moving. We followed that. We followed the prince of the power of the air, the the sort of leader of the demons. So realize we weren't just dead and sort of neutral. We were dead and enemies, right? Romans 5, 8 to 10. We were not only sinners, God died not only while we were sinners, but while we were his enemies, he died for us. 
And that is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. The nature of our own selves was twofold. You can look at it either way. We either were children who worked out wrath, back to the use of a genitive. So if you didn't look up genitives last week, children of wrath is a genitive. We're either children who worked out wrath or we're children who, were, who had wrath put on us because of our brokenness. Both are true. Both are accurate. Go to Romans, back to Romans chapter 5. You get to verses 12 through 14. And Paul argues, states from the Spirit, that sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Get into lots of theological discussion about that. He does not say woman. He chooses an intentional word for man, and it's on purpose. And not only does he say one man, but he names that man so that we know who is responsible for the passing on of sin through the genetic line, the generational line, and it's us, men. It falls on us as much as we don't like it. It falls on us. Sin came into the world through one man, to all people, for all have sinned, right? So that's where we are. Let none of us think that we escape this or bypass it or have worked our way out of it. We were dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the way of death. We followed the prince of the demons, the spirit that's at work in disobedience. We lived through the passions or lusts of our flesh, carrying out the lusts of our body and mind. All these things that work in antithesis to who God is. They break his character, but God. Right? That's his whole first four verses. Sorry, whole first three verses is our predicament for all people, but God irrespective of where we were, irrespective of our brokenness, made us alive, right? That's the structure of the sentence. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, he didn't do this begrudgingly and he didn't do it out of anger. He didn't do it out of spite. He did it because he loved us and he had mercy to pour out on us. Go back to chapter 1, verse 7. It's the grace and mercy he lavished on us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and enemies, right? Made us alive together with Christ and raised us up, go to verse 6, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. But God made us alive. But God raised us up. But God seated us with Christ. This is sort of the already but not yet construction of theology. Already we've been made alive. Already we've not just been made alive, but been raised out of the grave so that we can function knowing him. Not yet. Have we? That's a blasted fly the back of my head twice, then the front of my head. Not yet have we been seated with him where flies don't exist. Right? 
That's a to come, but it's stated as a past tense verb. Why? Because it is so certain that you might as well talk about it as something that's already happened. There's no way out of that result, right? We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. So why not talk about the inheritance as a guarantee? We don't talk about it as a guarantee in that sense. Future things as though they've already happened, usually because we don't understand or don't really, really believe. But we were seated with him. Go to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And it starts out with verses that we all know, right? Verse 29, or verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, right? Those who he knew in the past, he also predestined in the past to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined in the past, he also called in the past. And those whom he called in the past, he also justified in the past at the death and resurrection of Christ, right? That's when we were justified. And those whom he justified in the past, he also glorified with him in the future, past tense. It's an odd construction, but again, it's the idea that what is to come is so certain. It's so much, no way around it, that he'll talk about it as a past tense verb because the starting event already happened, which means the ending event must come. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. He made us alive. By grace, you've been saved. Why throw that in the middle? Because he wants, needs to remind us right there. Brock, you don't deserve this. You didn't earn it. It wasn't owed to you. I mean, what was owed to me from God? More death after my death. That's what was owed to me from God. After my physical death comes my spiritual death. Right? Right. The wages of sin, the earned payment of sin is death. But God made us alive. Guys, it's by grace, he says. It's by grace you've been made alive. And now it's by grace that you've been raised. This is the idea, the, the imagery that we sort of get here is the imagery not only of Christ coming back from the dead, which is accurate, it's actually the most accurate, his death, resurrection, and ascension. But looking at what he did with Lazarus out of John chapter 11, he calls to Lazarus, Lazarus in John chapter 11, who was a friend of his and who died. John eleven thirty nine says this. Jesus said to them, take the stone away. And that's important because the guy was, you know, dead, dead. He wasn't like sort of dead. He wasn't, we think he's gone, but he was dead, dead, and he stunk, right? Take the stone away. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. 
If you go down to verse 43, when he had said these things, he's given thanks to God. He had given God the credit. He said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. Christ called to the dead man, us, in the imagery, right? It's a story about Lazarus. But in the imagery, he called to us and he said, come out of your dead state. Not just come alive, right? What good would it have been to Lazarus if Jesus would have said, hey, there's a dead guy behind the stone? Lazarus, make yourself alive. And Lazarus came alive and he was still behind a stone in a cave. That wouldn't have done him much good. But Jesus called him out. And he made us alive. He seated us with him. And that's where we sort of end with it, right? For it's by grace we've been saved. Again, that, that word for, because of all this, because you're dead, because you didn't deserve it, because God is the one who made you alive, it's grace that saved you. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a free gift from God, not by works so that you and I can't boast. Why would we boast? Because we like to think we're good. We like to think more of ourselves than it was really accurate. But grace tells us that it wasn't what we did or earned or who we were, but it was God. And then we have a tendency to move from there, forgetting verse 10, forgetting how it moves forward, and we say, now I'm good. We're going to read a verse out of, Ephes out of Galatians chapter 3. And it's an amazing verse, set of verses. Galatians 3, 1 to 3. It says this. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Now, that's not a nice way to start saying something to somebody. So if I go to an elder meeting and I start out and I say, Lynn, you're a fool. How well does that really go? It really doesn't go well, right? Unless you really need to say it. I don't know why I chose Lynn. That was the first elder name that came to mind. Don't, don't read into that at all. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Fooled you, tricked you. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We're in Ephesians. We know it's by hearing with faith. When you believed, when you heard the word of truth and you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. By grace, you've been saved, right? All of this, spirit work, not us work. Now he continues, verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by the hard work that you pour in? You didn't just need grace to start. You need it to continue. And that's where we forget the reality of chapter two out of Ephesians is not about a past need of ours. It's about a present need of ours that leads to a future need of ours until such time comes as we are glorified, if you read Romans 8, or seated with Christ out of Ephesians 2. When that future certainty happens, then we don't need the grace anymore because all of that which is wrong and broken has been stripped away from us. 
And all that's left is what is right and what is good and what is the Holy Spirit and Christ in us. For you were dead and it is by grace you have been saved. And it's by grace then that we were raised. It's by grace then that we will be seated with him. We must not ever think more of ourselves than is right. And what is right is that we deserve death. But not only that we deserve death, we look around at the people around us and we say, you deserve death too. And Christ chose to give you grace and mercy. So I'd better as well. What was given to you must be given to others. That's how we live forward with this. We don't just say, I needed it and God gave it to me and he continues to give it to me, but you needed it, God gave it to you and I will continue giving you whatever mercy I can, whatever grace I can. Why? Because God chose to do that and I'm seeking to copy him. People around you will fail. They will hurt you. They will say things they shouldn't. They will do things they shouldn't. They will do things in ways that are harmful to you or certainly that you think are intended to be harmful. And we need to step back and give each other grace. That doesn't mean ignore things. Don't mishear that. But we give each other grace. We seek to move forward because that's what's right. Because it's not only by grace that I've been saved, but that you've been saved. Not only that you've been saved, but your neighbor's been saved. Not only that your neighbor's been saved, but that punk down the street who you really don't like can be saved. Or maybe already has been saved. Right? That's grace. And when we understand grace and we understand that this is about Christ, then we move forward with it in such a way that, that we just want to pour it out to other people because we understand what's been given to us. And what's been, been given to us is so much more than we could ever hope to deserve. So we do the good works that God has put in front of us, and that's next week. And we show grace to the people around us because we've been given grace. And we remember that we were dead, and it was only by God's intentional, specific hand working to give us grace that we are anything but still dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us the grace that you have, the grace that we did not deserve, the grace that we shouldn't have ever gotten out of our, our own reality. But we thank you for giving it to us nevertheless. We thank you for your son, for your love, for your character, for all that you are, Lord. And it's in the amazing name of your holy son we pray. Amen.